Good people, we are back. Now, the question that we are going to walk through today is what is DEI? So during Black History Month, we got reached out by a few companies, actually Fortune 100 companies, to speak to their DEI team. Now, it's definitely fitting because it's Black History Month. Now, in the corporate arena, they've been able to hone it down to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you know me, anything that has to do with discussing anything publicly, there is going to be a common thread of money. So as I was getting ready for this speaking engagement, I said, okay, I understand that DEI, this DEI team has essentially, it means different things to different people, just even the term diversity, even the term equity, even the term inclusion, right? So I wanted to remove any barriers that any of the individuals may have. So with this particular speaking engagement, I think it was close to a thousand individuals. Um, it was a financial institution I was able to speak to. And I wanted to, in the best way possible, allow them to see others' people's pain, even though it wasn't theirs. Right. So for the time, I actually said, let's reimagine what DEI means. And for the discussion, I actually shared that the D is going to represent devote which means to give all or a large part of one's time's, uh, time or resources to. E is going to represent empathy, the ability to understand and bold this term here, share the feelings of another. And then, of course, the I is going to represent intentionally. So one of the unique things that we all know that is, you know, I've been in the financial industry going on 10 years now. And one of the most fascinating aspects of money is the history of it. So there was a time when Cash App, Zelle, PayPal, you name it, you know, any type of technology that we use to be able to send money, that didn't exist. So the more my appetite grew for the history of money, I was actually naturally exposed to the history of our country, which leads to what I would love to share uh, on this podcast, which is the wealth gap. Now, you know, if you've listened to a few episodes, you you understand that my background is a bit unique. Um, so my exposure to the economy of America and the history of America has actually always been taught through the lens as if I was an outsider. Again, I'm Jamaican by, by blood. Um, and and it not because of my race, but again, because of my, my bloodline. Now, there has been a different experience. We don't have to get into all of that, but just at least wanted to, you know, set that set that foundation. So what's the numbers? Everybody's talking about the wealth gap and all this. Well, Isaac, what's the numbers? So the median uh, um, wealth for white families is roughly around one hundred and seventy one thousand. The median wealth for black families is roughly around 17,600. And unfortunately, that gap is still growing. And the question I ask those that are listening to this podcast is why? But before we can get into all right, why is this occurring, let's make sure we have the same definition. So wealth inequality is far greater than income inequality. All right. So what's the difference? Income is what you earn each week or year. Wealth is a sum of your total assets, ultimately. Um, uh, assets minus liabilities is, is your net worth, right? Um, so wealth can grow. 
So as the economy expands, typically the assets tied to them grow. So if you have money in the stock market, typically that is an asset that is going to grow. If you have your money in real estate, residential, commercial, typically, I don't think anyone is going to invest in a property and say, oh, I can't wait for the property value to go down. You know, I don't know about taxes or anything of that nature, but typically that is going to grow. So as the economy grows, their asset grows, right? Or as the economy expands. But personal wealth actually comes from two sources. So it's the income you earn, key point, but don't spend, which is your savings, in which then you can invest in stocks, bonds, and property. And then the second source of wealth is what is actually handed down to you from your parents or grandparents. So one of the questions that immediately came to mind as I was learning more about the wealth gap, the income gap, how does all of this occur, and looking at the second source of wealth that is typically handed down from one generation to another, the question that came to mind was, Isaac, what did you inherit? More importantly, what is the timeline of opportunities to be able to inherit assets, not only for the black community, but also for the white community? And I want to give you this, this context. So I remember playing sports. I played different sports. Uh, and I played those sports very well. <laughs> uh, uh, but specifically football. So when I was growing up playing football, there was um, ultimately there was equipment that you would inherit as a team. So you got your helmets. You know, you got the ear pads or whatnot that's in there. You could tell based off of the, the amount of dirt and brownness on the inside of the helmet. Like, okay, this has been here for a while, right? And then you could see on some of the wear and tear that, okay, this actually may be newer equipment. Shoulder pads, jerseys, right? So ultimately, the value of that, that equipment, the value of what I was inherited was actually predicated on how the last team treated it. So as a team, we could either inherit an asset that could help us or a liability that can hurt us. So when we think about what has been inherited over, uh, we'll just say, a 400-year time span, that is a question that unfortunately, if you, um, any history class that you take in middle school, high school, even in college, it may not give the proper context on the numbers that we just visited, which is medium wealth for white families, 171,000, medium wealth for black families, 17,600. All right, so let's back up. Isaac, you mentioned this historical perspective on why those numbers are the numbers, and you talk about the importance of understanding what was inherited. Well, give us give us some context. All right, I will. <laughs> and I'm going to start with 1865. So 1865 was, was the first time black families had the opportunity to build wealth in a way in which we all know how, which is through land. So we've heard about the, the, the um, 40 acres and a mule, right? Like that is an element of our history to where it's say, okay, after, you know, once the emancipation uh, um, proclamation was put in place, black folks are free. So what's the situation? What's going on? They should be able to, you know, do for themselves. One of the unique things about the slaves getting into the, the we'll just say, working environment is that they've been working. They established a skill. They were the ones executing a majority of the work during that time frame because, unfortunately, they were slaves. They just weren't getting paid. So once the Emancipation Proclamation was put into place, now black folks have the opportunity to make money. 
And uh, um, prior to all of the paperwork and all the things were, were in, in order, there was about 20 black leaders that was convened in Georgia. Um, pastors uh, specifically, I think all of them were pastors or a majority of them were pastors. And they said, all right, look, all right, black folks free what y'all want. I said, look, we, we, we don't want to we don't want to uh, hand out. We want to hand up. Just give us some land and we'll, we'll know what to do with that. OK, that's when the Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to deliver um, ultimately, ultimately about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, excuse me, eight hundred and fifty thousand acres of land to the formerly enslaved. Uh, from that process, you know, there was a, you know, element of breakdown of land and where we get to the 40 acres element. Is that OK? All right. Here's 40 acres. And they start the process of cultivating the land and, and getting it ready to produce the type of uh, crops and opportunities to feed themselves and their family. And as they were observing them working the land, they said, wow, they are doing an amazing job. You know what? Let's go and get them. Let's get them. Let's get them a mule. That's just like giving a farmer a tractor. You are doing so well with less resources. We're going to give you more resources because how well you are cultivating that that particular opportunity. All right. Forty acres and a mule. Biggest thing that I want to highlight is that the 40 acres came first. A mule came second. Again, we're still in 1865. So 1865. Good man. Abraham Lincoln said, OK, now that black folks are free. I want to make sure that they can participate in the free enterprise uh, economy in some form or fashion. So he said, all right, let's let's go in and establish the Freeman Savings Bank. So the Freeman Savings Bank is actually walking distance from the White House. Abe Lincoln said, this is so important to me. I want to make sure that if I uh, um, if I leave this building, I can go lay my hands on this particular building because this is going to play a vital role in the wealth accumulated, preserved, and potentially transferred for the black community, considering this is the first time they're able to participate in the United States. So in 1871, there was about, I want to say, 37 branches were open um, amongst uh, 17 different states. And as I mentioned, it was it was domiciled right across the street from the, from the White House, uh, right next to the Treasury Department. Now, for those that understand the story of the Freedmen's Bank, the Freedmen's Bureau, um, in 1874, the bank actually closed down. So it was open from 1865 to 1874. In 1873, of course, there was a depression and that impacted everyone. One of the unique thing, one of the unique aspects of Abraham Lincoln being assassinated a month and some change after establishing the Freedmen's Bank is that the gentleman that took his spot said, you know what, uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything Abe Lincoln did, but I sure can ignore it. And that he did. Not only they ignored it, but they essentially established a very um, uh, uh, unstable leadership, unstable leadership when it pertains to the bank. Um, they were providing uh, using the the resources that were deposits of the formerly slaves uh, or for, uh, for those that were formerly enslaved and, you know, putting it towards items that were risky and, and probably wouldn't have been approved. But considering that they have full control, they were able to do that. So imagine you got from 1865 to 1874, 70,000 deposits. And there's been a range on the valuation. I've heard, you know, hey, in today's dollars, it could have been one to two billion dollars of black people's money, considering 
um, you know, what money was worth at that time frame. Regardless, just know, even if it was 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, regardless, it was money. And after the depression of 1873, in concert with, um, we'll just say, terrible banking practices, half of the depositors um, received payouts, which was about 75%. The other half received nothing at all. So Isaac, why do you bring that point up? When we talk about the wealth gap, the income gap in between black people and white people, that was a real event. Imagine going to the bank, depositing money for almost 10 years. And for reasons out of your control, I didn't say invested money. I said deposited money. And for reasons out of your control, you go to that bank on a particular day and there's a sign on the door saying that it's closed. Then you reach out to others and they say all the other branches are closed. Then you say, well, what about my money, my savings that I've been setting aside, setting aside for deposit on a home, money I've been setting aside to establish a business, money I've been setting aside to uh, establish a savings for my children. All of that is gone. So when we think about the tools that may not be used by the black community, specifically when it pertains to the banks, when great grandma says, hey, I don't trust the bank, that doesn't come from the air. When great grandpa says, look, I'm going to put all my money in a shoebox and just keep it moving. I'm pretty sure it may be tied to an event like this to where money that they trusted the bank to hold for them and have custody. And when they came back to the bank, that money was gone. That's a problem. And if you look at some of the events that happened immediately afterwards and which we're going to get into, but I do at least want to highlight there are a number of black banks, black owned banks, black founding, black, black banks, uh, banks that were founded by black individuals. One of the banks that are that is still around is actually the Citizens Trust Bank. We actually have a uh, location here in the state of Alabama, specifically in Birmingham. But if you slow it down, think about the naming of this bank and how intentional they had to be. The citizens trust the bank. So considering you had to be so dogmatic about how individuals will be able to trust the bank, I think it would be wise for us to look at events that may have impacted one's ability to get proximate to the bank or how it was severed when they tried to, considering some of these um, inhumane and and frustrating events. One quick highlight that I want to point out, because Frederick Douglass was actually a part of this whole process from 1865 to 1874. Well, he was a part of a small piece of it. Uh, Before the bank closed down, they said, all right, we need a black face and we need someone to come uh, save the bank. So they hit up Fred, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass. One thing about Fred Douglass that I want to make sure folks know, hey, man, that man was paid. So he came down, cut a check for $10,000, which in today's dollars is about a million dollars to say, all right, look, let me try to do what I can to save the bank. Unfortunately, that was not the case. The reason why I bring that up is that there are individuals that we highlight as like civil rights leaders that we don't see the silver, S-I-L-V-E-R, that they've been able to accrue to be civil in moments in which their resources were able to speak to them, speak for them, even even though they didn't have to show their bank account. All right, so 1865, 1874, Freeman's Bank, Freeman's Bureau, 40 Acres and a Mule, that's, a, that's an event, right? So we're talking about how 
the income inequality and the wealth inequality, how, how all of that evolved. And then what were the life triggering events to where assets could have been inherited in which it hasn't or it didn't. All right. So another component that I believe we should discuss is redlining. So redlining is one of those historical events that helped create wealth from one for one class uh, versus the other. It is, I would say, one of the many inequities that was imposed upon black residents, which is still hindering their ability to create wealth to this day. And that was the effect of a red pen that is pressed upon a, a map and has had a significant contribution to the wealth gap between black and white communities. And I'm actually going to speak specifically here in Birmingham. So for those listening and you say, all right, what's redlining? I challenge you to Google redlining and put Birmingham, put Birmingham as a map. So the redlining map, if you're looking at it, you will see areas that says um, uh, that ultimately is divided by so-called, you know, what is desirable and what, you know, and based off of race. So the categories in the 1930s were labeled as best. Okay, that sounds like a good place to live still desirable all right i think we may need to you know put a roof in or something like that um third element was definitely declining i don't know if that would be a great opportunity great opportunity or location to live another component was hazardous Mm. and as you can see we are declining in the quality of the opportunities and the last is negro concentrated So per the map, black families were funneled into the red zones. So they were near industrial and flood zones, while the thin green spot, if you look at the bottom of the map, (laughs) which actually became portions of Mountain Brook, was reserved exclusively for wealthy white families. Now, those that know anything about Mountain Brook, Mountain Brook, I believe, is one of the uh, top five, top ten wealthiest zip codes in the country. And we are talking about a map that was established in the 1930s that actually still represents where the wealthiest families live today in 2020. And that's 90 years later. If you say, "Okay, Isaac, all right, the red map, I I mean, the uh, uh, red lining with the map, I understand that. Okay, what else? Well, the FHA actually played a major role. Uh, when it pertained to providing home ownership for the middle class. And, of course, this is an element that is a function of the government. So you would um, assume that there is, um, you know, an equitable outcome regardless of one's race, income, things of that nature. But let's actually read an excerpt from the 1938 when it released the uh, when the FHA released its underwriting manual. And it was actually already uh, um, infused with assumptions about race rooted in the real estate practice. Prime example, quote, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. A change in social or racial occupancy generally contributes to instability and a decline 
and values. I did not type that up. That is actually from the FHA's underwriting manual. And for years, this was practice. Black families were denied loans day in and day out, especially on, on, on particular locations. So think about, we got 1874, you got hundreds of millions of dollars of black folks that accrued and deposited their resources into that financial institution. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. Think about the money that could have been transferred from one generation to another. That's another generation that is establishing in the 1910s, 1920s that could have received resources to then establish real estate opportunities, residential and even commercial. Big deal, big deal, big deal. But that was eliminated. Then when Social Security was created in 1935, which was created to be a safety net, it actually had an exclusion for two categories of people, maids and farm workers. Now, think about how many people you know that are dependent upon Social Security for their income and their life expenses. And in 1935, if you were a maid or a farm worker, you were excluded from receiving that benefit. And actually in the South, that denied benefits for 66% of African-Americans. And out of the, uh, excuse me, it actually denied benefits for 66 for African-Americans throughout the country and then 80% of African-Americans in the South. So this is an element that, again, is a trigger that hindered the ability for individuals to participate in the free enterprise system due to events that they had no control over. Now, did I talk about Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street? No, I did not. Um, have I talked about some of the practices that have been um, uh, executed by financial institutions on having access to um, um, uh, residential loans or business loans? No, I have not. Have I talked about the graduating effect of homes being not properly valued and how equity that could have been accrued through that property could be used for other asset building activities? No, I did not. I wanted to bring context on, again, where we started. DEI. How do we devote empathy intentionally? How do we give all or a large part of our time or resource to understand and share the feelings of another that's done on purpose, right? You don't want to just sit there in front of someone and say, oh, I got to check the box so I can, you know, make sure. I'm no, it has to be done on purpose. And I think our ability to be more empathetic with families that may not have the resources that we may deem as uh, um, the type of resources to function and operate as a human, as a family, as an as a as a uh, um, you know business person, then we actually need need a little bit more context to get a better understanding on how they got here. So when I speak specifically for the black community, what I don't want you to take away is oh oh well oh, we 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 just need to give them money. No, that's not what I'm saying. Now I'll take some money if you want to give me some. I'll <laughs> 
What I am saying is that there are events that we have no control over. You have no control over. They have no control over. And I'm speaking to everyone that can hear me through their headphones, through their speakers, through their vehicle, on their phone, whatever it may be. Neither one of us had control over what has happened over the last 400 years. But we do have control over how we relate to other people on how those events they inherited impacted their mindset, their thinking, and what they're exposed to and what they're willing to be educated on. Because sometimes someone's wall has nothing to do with the person bringing them the information. The wall was created based off of what was inherited. Their grandparents may have been telling them about an experience that created this wall to want to build a relationship with the bank. Their mother may have been sharing an experience that created this wall for them to not trust anything that has to do with the government. There are experiences that we have all uh, um, um, we've all had in some form or fashion that no one can argue with us about. The one thing you can't argue with someone about is their is, is their experience. But what we can do is empathize with them on their experience so we can better understand them. And if we can be a resource, be a resource to them and their family. So I wanted to give that context. I felt like that was a, um, a great opportunity to be able to talk about money, but also talk about history and um, some of the culturally relevant um, economic events that may um, give more color and context on the, the wealth gap. Be on the lookout for more content, good people. We are back in action. The podcast is, is evolving. We had a lot of great things happening over the last um, few months um, and really super excited about sharing some of the updates. Outside of that, make sure y'all um, subscribe, share with a friend, stay tuned, and of course, stay planning.